While the number of newly graduated PhDs is rising, the number of long-term or permanent positions in academia is not. This means that most of those PhDs who were working towards a lifetime career in academia will one day realize that they will have to leave. For others, academia simply didn't provide the experience they wanted. But how to navigate the transition out of the ivory tower? How does a career work out there? How do I find a fitting job? And how do I manage leaving my social circles behind? The Recovering Academic Podcast is out there to help PhDs with that transition. My name is Dennis Eckmeyer and you are listening to episode 13 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. But before we continue, let me remind you that Science for Progress needs your support. And the best way to support us is to become a patron on Patreon. You decide your member's fee and level of engagement yourself, and there are perks. For example, the whole uncut conversation of this episode is available for members directly on Patreon. Check it out on www.patreon.com slash progress Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Recovering Academy podcast. Today, we are doing something different. We are here with Ian and Amanda, as always. But This is Clayji, introducing another version of this episode that is available on the Recovering Academic Podcast. I visited Clady, Amanda and Ian for a crossover. The motto of the Recovering Academic Podcast is There is sunshine outside the ivory tower. And they must know, they all left academia since 2015. I really like the bench I like to do my experiments I had to do some experiments in the dark as well but mine were with like a red light so it was not that bad (laughs) the red lights didn't help for me that that didn't do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh I I had a love for research and I really liked what I was doing but it got to a point I uh, I was here in the U.S. and I did my Ph.D. in Brazil. So all the fellowships and the things that I won, they didn't count. I would put them on my CV, but people would not understand them. So they were not valuable. And then uh, my CV was also a big a gap on fellowships and also when I moved to the US I was in a in a lab that had two R01s uh so for those who are not from NIH base R01 is like the big uh 5 year uh multi million dollar research so and that lasts for like 4 or 5 years so our lab had I don't know 5 people 6 people and we had two of those grants so I mean there was a lot of money. Yeah. So no one, I didn't apply for anything. I didn't, I didn't because I didn't have to. And no one told me that I needed to apply for my CV. So once time passed and then I started to apply, they were like, okay, you don't have any, anything on your CV. Why we should fund you, you know? And then it comes into like a roller coaster of like, okay, you don't have uh, we won't give you because you don't have, but if I don't have, I won't, won't get anything, you know? Yeah, it's a catch-22. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, I like my PhD, okay. This is Ian speaking. Like, you know, I always intended to be a scientist. And so, like, you know, my PhD was okay. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I went to a good school at Washington University in St. Louis, studied plant developmental biology, but 
it was a hard, isolating experience, but I did it and it was fine. And, you know, I got to do some interesting things. Like I was for part of that time in charge of inviting seminar speakers, like students, like the grad students as a group, we'd get together and nominate speakers like, Hey, we can invite a speaker. And like, and I would be in charge of handling some of the logistics and invitations and doing that kind of stuff. Um, just fun. And then I got a postdoc and did that for way too long, I feel. Like, cause again, like there's always a sense of just isolation and I didn't feel a sense of growth anymore. And, um, like spent many hours in a dark microscope room with laser beams, as well as some experiments like <laughs> using a green safety light. Plants don't really see green light very well. And so you can use green light as illumination so you can see what you're doing a little bit in a dark room to, you know, harvest your dark grown seedlings. Um, and I spent many hours doing stuff like that, like, you know, growing plants in there, growing Arabidopsis in its quote-unquote natural environment of a Petri dish. Um, and like, you know, it's just, yeah, like at the end it's like, you know, I'm not growing here anymore. Like I got my one big paper out of my postdoc and that was good. I started writing about science and like, I just like, you know, I like exploring the ideas more than actually doing them myself, I think. Um, I still didn't have a good idea of like what I would do out beyond academia besides like try to make it as a science writer, which I think still would be my long term goal. But through Twitter and networking, like I found my job as a virtual lab manager at, um, at Happy Labs where I work now. And I'm continuing to do like my writing and editing as I can on the side because I do enjoy that. And like I'm still. Like, you know, my science advocacy comes in the form of, like, I'm the editor for, I'm an editor for the National Postdoc Association's newsletter here in the United States. Um, yeah, and so, like, we put out an issue every month and email it to the 30,000 people or so who are subscribed to that list, whatever that number is. Um, yeah, so that's my story in a nutshell. I didn't spend hardly any time in the dark. And this is Amanda. I spent a lot of time, most of my time was spent in underneath fluorescent lights. However, the lab that I was in for my postdoc had zero windows and was in the interior of a building. So, uh. yes, I did have that. Um, and for me, it was just a realization that I didn't really enjoy doing bench work anymore. And um, that I didn't really want to have the whole PI thing where you move away from doing bench work and then you deal a lot more with like administrative and paperwork and stuff. Um, and it became a lot more of this, um, I don't know, like political sort of administrative thing. And what I really liked doing was, um, what I found that I liked doing was I liked editing work. Like I like being involved at the beginning stages when people are kind of like how Ian is, like he likes exploring the ideas more than actually doing the work. Or at least I think that's what you said. Like, I like being at the beginning stages when people are planning out a project because everybody's really excited about it. And then I like being at the end because everybody's really happy that it's over. But the <laughs> middle part where it's this long slog of things not working where you could have just stayed in bed all day and at the end of the day had the same exact results because nothing worked really got to me. So um, after doing my postdoc, I decided that I would do some editing work because I had gotten a position with Bite Size Bio to edit for them. And then I had faculty members who were like, hey, you can write, you can edit, edit this stuff and I'll pay you money. 
So that was always, that was kind of a relief at that point. So that's kind of how I transitioned out. Yeah, I feel like the four of us, she's including me, have kind of like the feeling of relief after we were done. And we, after, there's always like the transition period, like, uh, getting there or where getting to the point where you say okay I am done with this I'm going to finally take the leap and leave academia but that's the transition but then after you decide it and you go there and do it it kind of like feels good Mm -hmm. but is it all peachy no there's a reason why recovering academic exists so Right after I started my transition, which was what summer of 2016, yeah, like, yeah, something right. like that. Yeah, so like I was feeling a little lost because I had just you know quit my job and started working for my for myself and for Bite Size Bio, and I was kind of like I, I felt like I was on my own because everybody who I was friends with on Twitter was still in academia, or not everybody, but a lot of people were, and just kind of felt like I had lost my tribe. And I had talked to Clady a bunch about transitioning. Like, I talked her ear off and... Yeah, um, because I had transitioned one mm-hmm. year before. So that's why Amanda was like, she called me and then we were talking on the phone. And she was like, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And and also, like, how are you dealing with those things? And yes. And then Ian had contacted me about editing with Bite Size Bio or like general, like kind of like informational-ish sort of interview, but sort of. And then um, around that time, like, because he was transitioning after right. me. I still had not mm-hmm. left academia yet and, when we started this. Yeah, but you were thinking. Well, yeah, I was oh, definitely going to be leaving. Like, were, I was there, but. Yeah, right. you, you had decided, right. I think, but you yeah. were still as a postdoc. Right. And so about that time, we decided that, you know, what would be really cool would be able to do a podcast where we talked about these issues. Yep. And we all and so then, know each other from Twitter, basically. Yeah. yeah. You find yeah, all their Twitter contacts and their Twitter website and in the so show notes. We follow each other and we mm-hmm. were kind of like Twitter friends. And, and then yeah. when Amanda just she was like oh i feel like uh, there's a lot of people there's a lot in the internet about how to like the the basic things the the practical things about yes. how to change the cv to the resume or how to find your transferable skills there's a lot in the internet about this but there is not that much about uh the struggle that is uh to leave academia the the the, the emotional Right. part of that yeah and yeah. that's kind of how we felt that uh and that was missing and we were like well maybe we can try to uh start a podcast and and see how it goes right. and and it actually was very successful more than than yeah yeah we thought yeah like i expected maybe like I figured my parents would probably download an episode <laughs> like you know maybe a couple of friends would yeah, and I mean, the other part of that, too, I think, is like, one, it's creating, working to create a community of people who are transitioning out of academia, because that's normal, and like, I don't know how much we all connect yes. with each other, but there's also like, you know, all the practical advice that's out there that's, that is generally really solid advice, right? Like, here's networking that works, and here's CVs and resumes that work, and, you know, like, there's a lot of that out there, but 
like, it's really hard to necessarily, like, okay, does that fit my situation exactly? And how do you apply this? And, like, how does it feel to, like, even, like, start doing that work to get to, like, oh, yeah, I'm an excellent networker or I'm great yes. at resumes? Mm-hmm. You know, like, because, you know... I, you know, I'm still sort of at the point where it's like, oh, a resume, it's sort of like, you know, the best BS version of you you're putting out to the world for that specific <laughs> job, right? Like, and I'm like, eh, you know, it's, it, again, like, maybe this is like cynicism and elitism attitude from academia of just saying like, you know, oh, is it marketing? Then it's lying. Like, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, well, I think we're there for that too, just to like, you know, like, how do we apply this advice and how does that work in practice and how messy that actually is, even though, like I said, the advice is great a lot of the time and, like, we do that here too sometimes, like, you know, but give advice, but, you know, applying it's hard, like, it doesn't fit perfectly and we're here to say, like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, and the other thing is that usually when um, when you're leaving academia, where like when you're in this transition and you don't know, you're not happy, but you don't know what to do, usually you are in this academia bubble. So you are in academia still, and then you're surrounded by your PIs, by other postdocs, other graduate students, and and maybe they they have they don't want to be outside academia. They like it, and then you feel like. You you're the only person in the world that has those feelings and you're all by yourself and you don't have anybody to talk to. And that's one of the things that I heard most about our listeners. They're like, oh, it's so good to listen, to see that there's other people that think the same as I am, that feel the same as I am. And and I feel like this is uh, this is the main reason why we got uh, a lot of followers um, and people keep listening to our podcast because they identify to to what we're talking in a way, you know? I must say, I listened to the episode that Ian talked about, or you probably had several episodes about it, um, networking, and I very much related with, with the problem of what is networking really, and is it really that big of a thing, or is it just, you know, showing up, and then if you see somebody interesting saying hello and try to have a conversation and then not forgetting about that person you know you write down their address and if i don't know connect on linkedin or something and actually part of uh why i do my podcast is in order to connect it's a part of my way to um to do networking as a fellow podcaster of course i was interested in learning how recovering academic found its audience we started doing Twitter, and I guess that um, that was how we got it started, and basically from word to mouth. Um, but what really picked up was after we published the piece on Science Magazine, that it's that was about a year ago. Um, so we we published that piece, and then after that piece, that we were like we got a huge. I think that our number of downloads like doubled in a month <laughs> it yes it was like huge um and so this was what happened to us and i don't know how you could um 
there are so many podcasts out there now. It's like uh, now it's uh, I have a podcast is the new I had a blog that it was like 10 years ago. It seems that everybody has a podcast and <laughs> and it's so hard uh, to uh to find uh, to find the, the the time to to listen to everything that you want, so it's tough. After more than two years and some success finding a wider audience, I wanted to know which episodes they enjoyed themselves the most. Except this one. I was going to say this one's my favorite so far. Um, I think I really like our pilot. That's one of the ones that I've really enjoyed. And I've listened to that one again. Despite the sound having been so bad. <laughs> yeah, the sound's not so bad, but I really liked, um, it was a good introduction to our entire podcast. So I liked it. The episode where, like, we all lost it about, like, we're, I think we we're talking about how fitting in and, like, you know, I made the joke about, like, with orchids finding the fungus. <laughs> yeah, I um, thought about this as well. <laughs> I... I think that one, yeah, I mean, I think we called it Finding Your Fungus. Yes. And, um, anyway, it was, you know, we were talking about finding your right career match in a new job. And um, I think that was a fun, a good episode, very relevant to everybody. And um, yeah, so I, that's my favorite episode. Uh, all of our episodes, we, 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 we just open Skype, we choose a topic and we talk and that's it. <laughs> so it's usually a lot of fun, you know, it's kind of like, even it's our time that we, it's almost as we were sit down in a bar, uh, having a drink and just discussing science and we are recording. So all of them are kind of like a different type of fun. But I also thought about this finding yeah. the finding your fungus was the one that it at least we were like it was so funny we like Ian will keep talking about uh, how each orchid has this his own fungus and you have to uh, find your fungus and me and Amanda we couldn't talk because we were laughing so much that it was like because so just you know for people who don't know like orchid seeds are like minimal 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 like tiny dust specks and they produce millions of them but only a very few will land in the right spot and find the right symbiotic relationship with the right fungus to actually bloom and grow because orchids have to have a fungus to actually thrive um yeah and like it's crazier when you think about like orchids most orchids are epiphytes they grow on other plants even so, like, you can imagine, it's like, oh, yeah, well, orchid that grows in the soil on the ground, like, spreads its seeds everywhere. You're bound to find a fungus that's compatible, like, because the whole soil is made of fungi, right? But, like, no, 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 a lot of orchids live in trees. Why make it so difficult? Come on. Right. It's even more bizarre. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, orchids are... Life um, is difficult, Dennis. You think that everything right. is hap is easy? No, it's not. Right. It's and it provides a good analogy for career transitions, you see. Amanda, Clyde, and Ian founded their podcast because they themselves felt the need for such conversation. So looking back on the last two years, what did they learn from it and from their guests? So for me, it was that um, no matter how you feel, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who have the same conflicted feelings that you might have and that 
everybody comes through those feelings on the other side and they come out generally much happier than they were them before. Um, besides some of the practical skills of, I, I mean, I think learning to talk on a microphone is interesting and getting some skills in like actually interviewing people, uh, you know, um, is very, very useful in a lot of ways. And, um, like Amanda was saying, I think, you know, I've learned like, oh, there's a lot, it's nice not feeling alone. And there's a whole community of people out there who are like having these similar struggles of figuring out, you know, where to fit in the world as, you know, as PhDs moving beyond academia, which is what, like 80 some percent of PhDs at this point who don't end up in academia. Um, and I hope that, you know, like, I mean, I can't say this for sure. Like, we don't have a good measure of it, but like, I hope we're doing some good in the world for those people who are just feeling like, yeah, I'm alone and like no one else is going through this. Like, well, no, there's a whole community of us out here. And I don't know if we can help you specifically, but it's nice to at least commiserate and understand that, yeah, these are, you know, problems that people have, right? I used to live in such a bubble. Like I I wasn't I used to work in neuroendocrinology and even academic wise, I used to also only talk to other neuroscientists and um so knowing like all the other things that are up beyond my field and how those people can get out of academia and do totally different things was kind of mind-blowing because I had no idea that there were so many people like PhDs with so many diverse diversity and and all the things that people were doing like people get creative you know <laughs> so it was really nice um to learn, I think, like, um, kind of, like, grow, internal grow about how everybody is, the different paths that everybody's taking. And, and for me, I think that also it's very rewarding uh, because some, every once in a while we receive uh, a comment, uh, someone contacts us, uh, through our website and kind of like thank us how we help them uh, to in their transition and how just listening to us they could relate to what we were doing uh, and every time like when I am at Banther. Clady is referring to the Neurobanter, a party organized by neuroscientists who met on Twitter and it takes place during the conference of the Society for Neuroscience, the largest neuroscience uh, conference. And I've met a lot of people. Sometimes people come to me and say, hey, I listened to your podcast and it's so nice. And you kind of feel important and famous <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> but I feel like it's very rewarding mm -hmm. to, um, to feel like you are doing something that is appreciated and it's helping people all there. So that's one thing. Of course, we also talked about Science for Progress. I explained that my goal is to have a lay audience interested in academia. Yeah, so part of it is trying to give them the tools to, to deal with the situation and to understand why we talk the way we talk, why it all kind of sounds like we are not certain and why we would change our minds on things. Um, and that's just part of being a scientist uh, that that you change your mind if there's new evidence but what people need to understand is that 
still the the mainstream science opinion is usually a pretty sound one based on evidence and there's usually few alternatives out there that would have any merit compared to the scientific opinion right and whether the picture is complete or not because some of the things it's you know we've had 150 years of like building that up right from you know like thinking about things like evolution and climate change like you know like we've like scientists have been on top of that you know and studying that for over you know for hundreds of years now and it's like yeah, we've got a pretty solid idea of what's going on, even if there are still questions about how it works. Right? It's like, in general, this is the picture. like, And it's a pretty clear one, as far as we know. Right? Because there's a lot of things... Yeah, but still, even like this, there are some, uh, like, data from, like, 150 years ago. They It was not the... the Climate change, for instance, uh, the, 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 the way that people would, um, measure things, the instruments were different from the ones that we have now. So it's hard to compare. And a lot of, uh, it's, it's a lot of that, even if we've been, uh, studying for a long time, it's tough to, to get into, okay, uh, that's why there is so much non-consensus about, like, what is climate change, like, that is happening, yes, but, like, in, uh, in absolute numbers, we, we can't, we cannot say, you know, it, it's impossible. Right. But at the same time, I'm also thinking just the idea that 150 years ago, there was somebody, I, I forget who they were, but... Somebody was like, hey, Industrial Revolution, we're dumping a lot of stuff into the atmosphere. I wonder if that could change things, and especially with the carbon dioxide, if that's going to heat up the Earth. Like, that was 150 years ago. Like, just that idea was put out there, and scientists have since confirmed that pretty well, right? Um, again, there's another bit, like, another thing about academia that you might cover on your podcast, and this is things like, oh, well, so scientists, easy research grants to get, like, eh. You know, the fact that you had, like, a grant specialist, right, on, and, like, Amanda is the grant editor, right, in part. Like, th these things are not easy to get or produce. The ideas don't come easily for, like, what's worth, like, putting in. And it's always hard to make the case for foundational science, right, just because you always have to make the case in retrospect, right? It's always, like... No, 20 years ago, a scientist had this idea in their lab and got a research grant to study it, and now it's everywhere in business and being applied into the real world, right? It's always looking back, it's like, oh, we have GPS because Albert Einstein figured out relativity, right? Like, you know, like, this was, like, not a practical discovery at the time. It's like, eh, you know, hey, here's how the universe seems to work. We have lasers that weren't a, like, that was not a practical discovery at the time. It was just a, hey, let's see how this works. Right. Like, that was another thing that came out of relativity, right? It's like, oh, like, we could, like, do this thing with light. And let's see if, it, if we can make that, yeah, we see if we can make that, you know, application work. And it's like, oh, it does. Cool. Like, we have no use for it, but it works. And now scientists and everyone who has to give a talk uses a laser pointer. Right. Well, and we do, and we use lasers for surgery. Well, yes. I don't, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just dismiss all of lasers to just having laser pointers. It's not just a cat no. toy. 
Now they want to, they even want to push a spaceship through space with a laser now, right? Yeah. So the idea is to not have a, a spaceship full of uh, fuel, which would be very heavy and you would have a lot of problems uh, accelerating it because the more you want to accelerate it, the more fuel you need and the more fuel you have on board, the harder it is to accelerate. And uh, they want to, the idea is now to just have a huge sail um, and then point a laser at it and push it with the strength of light, which apparently uh, in outer space is enough to accelerate continuously. And they say they can get to a pretty high speed doing that. Um, I guess it's so, like that. Fric I guess so outer space is a uh, pretty frictionless, huh? Yes, apparently. <laughs> kind of like well, there is some, right? There's, there's always some stuff, but um, yeah. So going back just quickly to like, like the other thing that we like, I think we can do as a recovering academic as a podcast here is, I, I mean, get some sense of what the world of outside of academia is like as a PhD and introduce, um, you know, academia, like more people in academia to the broad things that people with PhDs actually end up doing in the world. Because a lot of people don't have any clue, like PhD students and postdocs and even professors who might be mentoring them and like, it's like, I don't know what you're going to do outside of academia. Like, I have clueless. So hopefully our podcast can provide some bridge between those things. And with this, we end this episode. You can find the Recovering Academic podcast under recoveringacademic.net and their Twitter account is at recoveringacad. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Science for Societal Progress on the podcast app of your choice. Our website is www.scienceforprogress.eu and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter under at Progress. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon. Bye-bye. <laughs>